Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. This week, we want to talk about some of the fundamental questions about why do you bother even doing planning? And I know that that many of us think, oh, the idea of estate planning is is somewhere in the category of of going to the dentist, right? Yeah. It's something you don't want to you don't want to do. On the one hand, it means thinking about your death, uh, or and or thinking about your disability. It's both those things. You know, estate planning, properly understood, is not simply about when you die, but but it definitely includes about when you die. So. Right. People don't want to think about that subject, and they think, well, I'll get to that later. And we all know that you may not know specifically the statistics because it's hard to keep those statistics. But I'll tell you that more than 50% of the people go out of this world without a plan. And in some cases, the attitude is, well, look, I don't have much, so it doesn't matter. But You'd be surprised. I know. But but here's the point. Whatever you have, it's everything you have. So everything you've you worked for. Yeah, you would think that whatever that residue is of your efforts over the years, that you would want to be very much a steward as to how you you transition that or transmit mm-hmm. that to the people you care about. On a more selfish level, to be sure that in the event you have a stroke or something this afternoon— and that you're in the care of others, that you've given authority to people that you trust to make those decisions for you. Because that's what we talk about, crisis mode. You don't want to be in that situation. Yeah, and, and it's and it might be that your entire estate, even if it's you know small in your opinion, will be used up trying to get somebody appointed to make decisions for you because that, that's what has to happen. Somebody has to make decisions. And, and if you're a... Uh, a competent adult, uh, then you didn't have that person appointed until you became an incompetent adult. Right. And at that point, somebody has to pay for that. Strong roots are essential for a healthy tree, especially your family tree. That's why you work hard to take care of your family every day. At Tucker Allen, we know that taking care of your family means planning for the future. Our team provides personalized estate planning to help you protect your family, your legacy, and your future. From wills and trusts to long-term care and estate planning. Count on Tucker Allen. Personalized estate planning made simple. So there are lots of reasons to think about planning, and uh, and they're they're pressing reasons. I guess maybe that's the the main walk away from, from these introductory remarks is that this decision is more pressing than you realize. Because tomorrow's not promised. It's not promised. And we know ultimately what's going to happen. We know you're going to die. We just don't know when. So I want to talk a little bit about, you know, what? why does it make sense to have a plan versus uh, simply using uh, the various tools that might be found out there, kind of cobbling together some um, way to assure that stuff goes when you die right. to somebody that you care about. At many of you are familiar with POD accounts. Payable T- on death. Yeah, TOD accounts, transfer on, on death. death. 
Yeah, many of you know already that you can have beneficiary clauses, of course, on life insurance, on on your your uh, deferred compensation plans, your IRAs, et cetera. You can have it on real estate. Someone theoretically could put together, you know, cobble together a, a series of of piecemeal solutions that together would allow them to designate somebody to get their stuff when they pass away. And I want to kind of address that, and I want to address it from a couple of perspectives. The first thing I'd want to make clear is that let's not confuse that with a plan because you don't have control over it the way you would if you had, for example, a trust. And as you know, anybody who's watched this show very much knows that we're huge fans of trust. Trusts are not just for rich people. But some people would think that, gee, if I can put a a, a name on a bank account, if I can put a name on brokerage right. accounts, which is POD and and TOD, um, if I could put a name on a deed at, as a person who would receive it when I pass away. Like a beneficiary deed, yeah. are you talking right? Yeah, beneficiary deed. Then why not just do that and not fool with the expense of a lawyer? But often it's not so much the expense. I think many people just think it's a lot of hassle, a lot of effort, because you have to think about a lot of things. You have to fill out documents, et cetera. But I can tell you that that the payoff for a plan is is just huge. And, and I want to be sure you've thought about it so you can appreciate that. Let me first uh, deal with the issue of taxes. Now, many of you have heard correctly that gee, as to when it comes to estate taxes or gift taxes, that we have an exemption that now with adjustments for inflation is right. north of $12 million per person. So you could be a, a couple and have 12 or 24 million bucks. So you're thinking, gee, I'm well south of that number. So I don't need to worry about estate taxes or gift taxes at all. Well, you should know that, that there's a sundown for that level of exemption. Uh, that sundown is in 2025. So uh, at that point, depending on what happens, you know, you could be vulnerable some portion of your estate to this 40% yeah, tax. Very true. That's the thing about estate and gift taxes. It's very harsh. I mean, it's it doesn't start at 5% and work its way up. It's 40% presently. And historically, it's been like 45%. And uh, I looked this up earlier just because I w- wanted to nail down more spe- more specifically for you what these exemptions have been in the recent past as well as tax rates. 1997, $600,000 was the exemption. You may say, well, 97 was a long time ago. Some of you may not have been born then. <laughs> but now, if you're watching this you, you're show. Watching, you've been born. You've been yeah. born. Yeah. And 55%, 55% was the top tax rate. And, it, and when it says top tax rate, it starts out very close to that because it's not graduated like income taxes. The idea is, look, we're only going to apply this to people who have significant assets, so we're going to let it start at a pretty high number. And if it increases, it increases sharply. So uh, in this case, it's 55% in 97. Let's go to 2000. It was 675 was the amount of the exemption, 675000 that's not that long ago. Uh, let's move up some. Let's go all the way to 2006. 2006, what do you think it was? 46% was the tax rate, and the exemption amount was $2 bucks. Wow. $2 million. And um, 
So it jumped up that high. It it jumped. It stayed two million until oh uh, nine, and then in oh nine it went to three point five. But then we went through a period where we had the financial crisis, and this is during the Obama administration, uh, that they wanted to provide some tax relief. So like there was you're like talking oh eight. 08, 09, it may have been 10 or 11, actually, yeah. when it was passed. But anyway, it was associated with a tax relief plan that was triggered by this harsh recession we went through. So that was when we went way up. And it's been indexed for inflation, so it's gone up since then. But it's set to expire. Now, is it possible that Congress will renew it at that level? It's possible. I wouldn't bet the balance of my life and the financial benefits that I have for my children and grandchildren on that idea. I wouldn't because I think that there's been a very populist mood in the country. I think we've drifted a little bit to the left. I think the idea that that wealthy people or people with assets should be able to, to transmit them without an estate or gift tax uh, is probably losing favor in the past. Very much so, I think. Yeah, in the past, there was a lot of a lot of support for that idea because it was based on the notion that this is income or this is these are assets that you've already been taxed on, presumably. Uh, right. the, the bulk of it. I mean, to the extent it's a product of savings of of money you earned, then most of it is going. It will have been taxed. There may be some things that, like real estate, that are appreciated that have not been taxed, but but for the most part, these things have been taxed. And, and so the idea was it's not fair to double tax. But there's a lot of political pressure uh, to say, look, the idea that you can, you can have generational wealth, the, the fact that people get to accumulate stuff and then transmit it to the next generation, they think is somehow undemocratic or it's unfair and that, you know, that money should be redistributed, quite frankly. So there's that that mood, and that mood has gained momentum politically. So I'm not at all confident as I was, say, five to ten years ago. I would have thought that that this form of taxation would, would continue to be very uh, permissive, meaning, uh, you know, for the most part, there's not a political will to take the money from people who've died and who've paid taxes. Um, but forget that. I mean, I really think the mood's changed. So those of you who are thinking that that you're out of the line of fire because maybe you have a total of a million dollars, you're not going to be, in my opinion, out of the line of fire very long. Uh, I could be wrong. Yeah. But but it, it's, it's – um, what does it cost you to plan for the substantial possibility that you will be in the line of fire? Keep in mind another dynamic that you have to think about, and that's the fact that we have inflation. Now, depending on what expert you listen to, you guys have have listened to some of them. I read a lot of a lot of uh, economists on this subject, people who I respect and and are respected. Yeah. You know, there we've seems, had guests on the show that have commented. We had we we talked about take. this a couple yeah, times. Yeah, and there there's a there's a lot of evidence that the idea of the inflation is going to be around for a while. And that's due to some forces beyond simply Fed policy. I know the Fed's perspective is that that they're masters of the universe and that they have the capability. <laughs> and, well, it's the perspective of everyone else too that they're Pull masters. Pull down of the, the economy. Yeah. So it, it, you know there is this presumption on the part of 
of our leaders that the Fed is really the, the, the center of action, that they have the capability of determining whether or not we have inflation by controlling the discount rate and, and uh, quantitative easing, et cetera. But, but there, are, there are forces at work that, that simply can, can overwhelm anything the Fed will do. And, and one of those forces is going to be these demographic effects of declining population. It's just huge. And when you when population declines, if you keep technology or productivity at the same level, then it means that the standard of living declines. Now we have some countervailing forces going against that and we called you know these technological developments such like, such as robotics, et cetera, that that you know theoretically these things could progress at a sufficiently fast rate to where they compensate for the fact that the world is declining in population. Uh, but but the, the general rule that has been the rule since time immemorial is that to have an economy, you got to have people. You have to have people working, engaged in productive right. activity. That's what makes an economy. That that's what increases the standard of living. And if you take a given number of people and you held technology constant, you take a given number of people and that population declines. And I can tell you, looking at Asia, Japan, China, yeah, you're, there are precipitous declines that are you know, within the next five to 10 years. So we're not talking about a, 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 a tsunami that lies out a couple of decades <laughs> down the road. We're talking about something that is here and now. Yeah, at present. And so if you have these declining populations and there's not this this other factor that, that performs uh, quickly enough to compensate for these declines, then you're going to have a reduction in the standard of living. So can we progress fast enough in terms of technology and robotics and other things? Mm. Can we move along fast enough in those ways to prevent this inflation from hitting? And I'm very skeptical, and not just me, but but people who I respect um, are of the opinion that this population problem will mean that we're going to have inflation. Another factor, so there's, there's, there's population decline. Another factor, though, and, and, and gaining momentum is the fact that we're we're reversing the trends of the past two decades, which were globalization. Now we're decoupling. Mm-hmm. So globalization made us very efficient. It reduced the cost of living. It was wonderfully um, uh, beneficial to everyone on on all continents, essentially, right. especially Asia and North America and Europe. But those forces now are going in the opposite direction in almost every respect, and not just because of, of hostilities, but yeah, that's feeding it to some extent. But there's there's no longer this philosophy that that we should engage in in free enterprise uh, and borderless trade. That's kind of gone to a great extent. And now barriers are being erected. Um, you know, there are problems now which we're boycotting entire, almost an entire con- continent or right. subcontinent. So. These forces are not likely to go away. It's they've been at work for a while, and even before the pandemic, even before this issue with Russia and Ukraine. So, if you throw in this deglobalization, which incidentally is the norm historically, historically it's not normal for all nations to engage in free trade. That's that's a bit of an anomaly, and it really has happened over the last three decades, starting around 1990, and we've enjoyed the benefits of that. And there's been a lot of technological process uh, progress too that has diminished the consequences of the depopulation that we've seen already. But 
but now I think you know these demographic forces, um, the, the issues on deglobalization. I think that these things together uh, are going to assure that we're going to have some level of inflation. So back to my point is to say that that when you plan for your potential tax liability, uh, whether it's a state tax or gift tax, uh, keep in mind that if you're wrong, the penalty is very harsh. You know, yes, it, it is. It, historically, as we talked about a moment ago, it's been up to like 55%. Now, think about the consequences of somebody who inherits a business from you or a piece of real estate or, or yeah. anything. They have to pay that tax. And often that's the crisis is even though you could say, well, gee, they, they have the money to pay the tax because it's 55% of what I gave them. But they really don't have the liquidity in many cases. It's very unusual that they would be able to access that money without some sort of penalties or uh, essentially right. having to sell at a discount due to the urgency. Something to think about when you are estate planning. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, yeah, you do. And, are and they going to be able to pay these taxes? And it's easy to forget about that because— you know, it's kind of a practical problem that it's easily overlooked when you're thinking, well, I'm giving my children a, a $10 million piece of land or a million dollar piece of land or a $500,000 piece of land. But if they have to put it up for sale and we're in a recession at the time, there's quite a penalty for that. Now, I will mention, I won't go into it, but there are some statutes for certain types of assets where you can pay them out, like a family farm is included in that, where you can, you know, the... IRS has and had the generosity to say that uh, that you can take up to 10 years to pay off that tax. It can apply to some other assets too that I won't go into, but I just want you to know that. So so that that offsets some of that risk, but it doesn't by any means apply to all the people I'm talking about here. So I, I let me then move to the next topic, but uh, don't think because you have less than a million dollars that you're outside the line of fire of a state and gift tax. Uh, you are presently, of course, uh, but I just think that things can change. And, and the title of this discussion is, why plan? Why develop a comprehensive plan? And, and one of those reasons, an important reason, is the possibility that your loved ones, though you don't consider yourself rich, may be paying a state and gift tax. So another reason that you want to think about planning is to think about, for lack of a better phrase, I, we'll use the word yield. Yield, and okay. Yield. I yield. like yield. Yeah, yield is, it sounds a little wonkish. You know, that's kind of what financial analysts use the word yield. A lot. But but I thought about, you know, what's a better word to describe how to extract the most good from your assets? So whatever you've accumulated, again, it's everything you have, right? So, so that makes it important. So whether it's 500000 or $5 million or whatever it might be. Um, so the idea of yield means you want to, to be able to extract the most good or benefits possible from every dollar that you've accumulated. Now, a piece of, of that good will relate to the balance of your life. And I don't mean necessarily charity. I, I, it, when I say good, it does suggest just other people. But um, I'll, I'll say good slash benefit, meaning that, that you want to be sure that you're taking care of for the balance of your life, that there's not waste that occurs there. So there's a stewardship function, yeah, to assure that, that you've made a provision for your care. Uh, not that it's in the hands of a judge who doesn't know you and who appoints somebody who may not know you. 
But the other piece of yield is when we think about how can you generate the most benefit for the people that you care about with the assets that that remain after you pass away. And so yield is a good word for talking about that because you could say if you were to use a bunch of individual instruments, kind of a, a box of of uh, approaches that solve particular things and say, well, gee, I have a piecemeal plan uh, in which I've dealt with everything. On my 401k, I've added a beneficiary designation. On my real estate, I added a beneficiary designation. On my securities account, I put a transfer Mm -hmm. on death. On my bank, a POD. So you may be thinking, I'm good. But that is not a plan. And the yield on that I would argue, is far lower, far lower in terms of generating the good you want to generate for those you care about. The yield is far lower than what you could otherwise do. It's like choosing when you have money to simply place it somewhere where you earn 2% interest versus a place where you earn 10 or 15% interest. But in this case, we're not really talking about dollars in that way. So um, I want to be clear that when I talk about yield here, I'm using it as a metaphor to say you want to, to generate the most good. And the most good means a plan in which you get a chance to assure that people you care about are protected, that they're protected from taxes to the extent they can be, that they're protected from lawsuits to the extent they can yes. be. That's a big one. Yeah, that they're protected from, dare I say, divorce to the extent they can be. In other words, you can take this same amount of money and by by developing a plan, you can produce a yield on that, which we'll define as good, good goodness for the people you care about. That is far better than a piecemeal approach that I guess was motivated in part by a desire to avoid attorney fees. Huh? And, you know, I have a POD story. Uh, should we save it for the— No, no, this is a good time. Want... Okay, us. okay. My mother um, had this checking account, and she put me as POD, all right? And she did have a will. So hmm. the bank changed hands, you know, from the time she did this. Several times. So, as banks do. Yes, yes. And the new bank, the last bank um, that she had, they changed the wording of it. And I'm trying to remember, it didn't say POD, it said something like in trust or something like that that was confusing. So, after she passed away, um, you know, I went to go claim her account. And I had a very uninformed bank manager tell me, no, no, you need, I, I don't know, it, I, she needed something, some legal document showing this. And I said, no, it's supposed to be paid to me upon her death. Here's her death certificate. So we went round and round and round. How long was ago was this? Oh, five. Okay. And so I'm contacting my mother's attorney and he said, no, that bank manager is wrong. And then I I was led to the St. Louis County Government Center, and I was put in touch with some commissioner, and this commissioner said, you tell this bank manager she's wrong, that's your bank account. So fortunately, what happened, and and that bank manager still wasn't listening, some younger person on staff said, no, 
she is right because when we changed hands, we changed the wording. It, you know, it it means the same thing as POD, but it it created a lot of hassles for me, a lot of hassle. Mm-hmm. Um, and and my mom did not have a trust. She was just advised to do a will, and uh-huh. that's what she was told. So, yes, I do see what you're saying. A trust protects you and your survivors more. And, and, and that that is an issue that. Um, you have a lot of of bureaucratic change that takes place, right? And and a lot of it is institutional, meaning it's taking place within these individual financial institutions. Um, and and often though, a statute will prevail, and and specifically the statute that was in effect at the time that you that the account was created will often prevail. But as your story illustrates, you can have a lot of hassles along the way. Yeah. Um, it was very upsetting. Uh, yeah, and and there's just um, there's just no reason to not anticipate things like that. Things like the challenges your loved ones are going to have. Things like taxes that can strike um, at the moment of your death or soon thereafter, versus the income taxes that will flow after that. Failing to get, in some cases, what's called a stepped up basis. Uh, that you want to take advantage of. All these things are worth considering. And and the wonderful thing about it is that if you have a plan, you can dramatically increase the power of every dollar you have, whether you consider it a lot or not, uh, the power of every dollar you have to do good in the lives of those you care about. So we're, we're breaking this discussion in two parts. So we're going to, let's stop here. And let's go ahead and pick up next week. And I want to talk further about this idea of maximizing yield as as the, the primary goal in planning and why it's imperative that people have a plan. So until next time, this has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Talk to you then. You've been listening to Life's Third Act, a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week, we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.